the human beings that make up the prison population. And so Eduardo um, asked me about um, the death penalty, which he said is part of the wages of whiteness that must be paid so as to maintain a racialized democracy. The democracy resulting from an unfulfilled abolition. And so what I said in response to him, uh, though this may seem counterintuitive, I would argue that the death penalty is something akin to a return of the repressed racism of slavery now let loose on whomever happens to be caught in its grasp, whether they are black or Latino, Native American or white. The most compelling explanation of the endurance of capital punishment in the US, and everybody knows it's the only, uh, you know, what they call advanced, and I, I really can't call it an advanced industrialized nation, it's the only industrialized nation that executes its citizens routinely. Um, the most compelling explanation for this can be discovered in its embeddedness in slavery and in the ways the racism of slavery caused it to be differentially inflicted on black people. In the aftermath of slavery, the death penalty was incorporated into the legal system with all of its overt racism gradually concealed. That capital punishment um, should really have been abolished and might well have been abolished had not slavery continued continued to be um, a, a major force in this country during the period of the period of, of the American Revolution. There was a great deal of debate about capital punishment as archaic and barbaric and. Uh, having no place in a democratic society. And as a matter of fact, most states did abolish capital punishment for most offenses. Uh, so that most states ended up with capital punishment for white people uh, inflicted when white people were convicted of murder. But it continued to be a punishment inflicted on slaves for a whole range of very, very minor offenses. And abolitionists constantly pointed out that in Virginia, for example, a white man could be punished by death only if he had committed murder. But a slave could be subject to the death penalty for 70 different offenses. And so what I try to argue is that slavery kept the death penalty alive. And in the aftermath of slavery, this death penalty that continued to uh, be, a, that was a part of slave law, uh, um, was sort of gradually deracialized. It went into uh, the, the law of the entire land in such a way that gradually um, robbed it of its 
obvious connection with slavery the death penalty now appears to be evacuated of all of the racism that produced it even though we argue and it's true that there's a hugely disproportionate number of black people and people of color on death rows all over the country that is indeed true and we also argue that a person has a greater likelihood of being sentenced to death if his or her victims are white and that's true but I think it's also important or perhaps even more important to understand the structural racism there that 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 emerged from its connection with slavery and then I said to Eduardo let me see if I can back up and say a few words about racism in the contemporary era racism in what's often called the post-civil rights era especially since we've declared Rosa Parks to be a national hero and I have deep respect for Rosa Parks but I was extremely ambivalent about the decision to have her body viewed in the Capitol Rotunda thus declaring her to be a national hero because this means of course that she becomes the triumphant image of the struggle against racism that it's all in the past Rosa Parks becomes a symbol of the triumph of justice and equality whereas I am sure she herself would have represented herself as a participant in the ongoing battle to eliminate racism and inequality so I said let me see if I can back up and say a few words about racism in the contemporary era racism in the post-civil rights era the mutations and alterations of racism racism at a time when members of underrepresented racialized groups have now been offered powerful leadership positions how would an accessible analysis of racism address the fact that a black woman previously national security advisor is now secretary of state and that a Latino is attorney general of course this new racial integration is represented as the face of the perfect multicultural nation this apparent dilemma can be accounted for by recognizing that racism is something far deeper than that which can be resolved through processes of diversification and multiculturalism there are persisting structures of racism economic and political structures that do not openly display their discriminatory strategies but nonetheless serve to keep communities of color in a state of inferiority and oppression Therefore, I said, I think about the death penalty as incorporating the historical inheritances of racism within the framework of a legal system that has been evacuated of overt racism while continuing to provide a haven for the inheritances of racism. This is how it can be explained that capital punishment is still very much alive in a country that presents itself as the paradigm for democracy in the world. There are more than 3,500 U.S. citizens currently on death row in the United States at a time, and I, um, 
I should say that not all 3,500 are legally U.S. citizens. There are 3,500 people on death row in the United States at a time when all European countries have abolished capital punishment, when the European Union makes the abolition of the death penalty a precondition for membership. Turkey just recently abolished its death penalty in order to enter into the European Union. Cote d'Ivoire just abolished their death penalty. Senegal just abolished their death penalty. As a matter of fact, this is now the trend in Africa to abolish capital punishment following South Africa. Capital punishment is a receptacle for the legacies of racism. But now, under the rule of legal equality, it can apply its power to anyone, regardless of their racial background. So, Eduardo said, you mentioned Condoleezza Rice, Roberto Gonzalez, and Colin Powell as people who make it appear as if Americans live in a racial democracy. And I said, of course, I am being sarcastic when I refer to the U.S. as a racial democracy. Now that we have people of color in high positions in the government and the corporate world, particular individuals are not inevitably linked to the structures of oppression implied by their racial backgrounds. Neither are they compelled to represent those who continue to bear the brunt of racism. Many years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King criticized black people who climbed out of the muddy swamps on the backs of their sisters and brothers. It is inconceivable that these individuals would be where they are now without the pressures of the movement for civil rights and democracy. And so it appears to be a contradiction that people of color can play major roles in sustaining contemporary racism. But in actuality, it is more an inevitable consequence of the struggle for equality. The lesson in all of this is that we need to shift our understandings of racism. In an earlier era, one of the most obvious signs of racism was the absence of people of color in governmental and economic leadership positions, which reflected more generalized forms of overt discrimination. But racism does not vanish with the appearance of individual people of color within those institutions that bear responsibility for the workings of racism. In fact, I would argue that racism is even more effective today and even more devastating today than it was during the era that produced the civil rights movement. The country's imprisoned population provides a dramatic example. Among the more than 2 million people currently in prison, over 70% are people of color. These developments indicate the limitations of the strategies of multiculturalism and diversity. And official efforts to eradicate racism are now largely defined by diversity and multiculturalism. Identity by itself has never been an adequate criterion around which communities of struggle could be organized. Not even during those periods when we imagined identity as the most powerful engine of movements. Communities are always political projects. 
political projects that can never rely solely on identity. Even during the period when black unity was considered to be the sine qua non of struggle, it was more a fiction than anything else. The class, gender, sexual fissures that lurk just beneath the construction of unity eventually expose these and you know, all of the other differences that made generalized unity an impossible dream. It is interesting how much more difficult it is to transform discourses than it is to build new institutions. Many decades after the fiction of black unity was exposed, the most popular assumption within black communities is that unity alone will bring progress. Even now, when we can point to the Condoleezza Rice's and Clarence Thomas's and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, people retain this dream of unity. Young people who are just beginning to develop a sense of themselves in the world assume that the only way they can make a better future for the many black people who lead economically and intellectually impoverished lives is by uniting the entire black community. And I hear this repeatedly. But what would be the purpose of uniting the entire black community? How would one possibly bring people together across now all of the complicated lines of politics and class? It would be futile to try to create a single black community today. But it does make sense, I said, to think about organizing communities, organizing communities not simply around their blackness, but primarily around political goals. Political struggle has never been so much a question about how it is identified or chooses to identify as it has been a question of how one thinks race, gender, class, sexuality affect the way human relations are constructed in the world. And Eduardo asked me to talk about American democracy in this context, uh, oh, in the context of torture and gender diverse torturers. And I said, the meaning lurking behind the model of democracy promulgated by the Bush administration is the fraudulent equality of the capitalist market. The freedom it elusively offers to all. Marx exposed long ago the profound inequalities that constitute the basis of, of of what he called, and what I still like to call, bourgeois democracy. But the policies and pronouncements of the Bush administration amount to a parody of even those distortions. When democracy is reduced to the simple fact of elections, never mind that they were prepared by the mass brutality and destruction inflicted on Iraq by the US military, whatever we consider to be freedom has disappeared. Those who present the gender and racial composition of the US military as a dramatic example of the equality offered by democracy have clearly lost sight of whatever, de whatever promise democracy might hold for the future. Gender equality in the military is represented as the equal opportunity to participate in every aspect of military life 
including equal opportunity to participate in the violence previously assumed to be the purview of men. This approach leaves no space to challenge the status quo. The irony that women helped inflict physical, mental, and sexual torture at Abu Ghraib is that their involvement points to the extent to which this formal, abstract democracy has been successful in the military. When equality is measured in terms of access to repressive institutions that remain unchanged, or even become strengthened by the admission of those who were previously barred, it seems to me that we need to insist on different criteria for democracy. Substantive, substantive as well as formal rights, the right to be free of violence, the right to unemployment, housing, healthcare, quality education. Um, and I said in brief, socialist rather than capitalist conceptions of democracy. I wanted to talk about education and how I, it seems to me that the current administration's goal is to dismantle our public education system as we know it and how that sets people on the track to the military because so many, um, the kids that are going to be to fall behind are the ones that then end up have no options other than to join the military. And you know, then it just makes it easier because they've got such poor education, haven't been taught critical thinking skills to turn into the kind of soldiers that can then be so easily taught to torture. Um, so when I saw those pictures from the prisons in Iraq, I was making those connections to how to our education system and how the recruiters are visiting schools in certain communities in our education and college recruiters are visiting schools in other communities. Um, and I just wonder if you could comment well, on that. Well, you know, uh, I think that um, basically you're, you're right, but this is one point that I would like to draw attention to, and that is the assumption that people who are better educated would be less likely to torture. It's so easy to characterize the people who engage in torture as, uh, um, as aberrant uh, because of whatever, because they haven't had uh, access to certain kinds of opportunities. But if you look at who is really behind those practices, those technologies, it's the people who are very well educated and who have turned, who not only who not only uh, promote the use of torture, but who have learned how to characterize it as the work of democracy and the work of freedom. So I, I absolutely agree with you, however, that a, a lack of education is the easiest guarantee that a person will either end up in prison um, or be compelled, well, you see, it's not just a lack of education, it's a lack of the material resources for education, because so many people join the military because they have no other possibility of going to college or getting a higher education. 
And therefore, I think it's important for us to see the links between what we call the prison industrial complex and the military industrial complex. And also to see that we cannot simply call for education, not incarceration, but rather that we have to call for a radical transformation of the entire educational system. The connection with slavery is something that we have to try to begin to unravel. And it's a lot, it's much deeper than the rhetorical connection that we often assume and make. And as a matter of fact, in thinking about this over the last few years, it's become clear to me that in the campaign for reparations for slavery, which we also kind of tend to think about simplistically sometimes, like those who are the descendants of slaves should get some kind of compensation. I mean, does that mean we give Condoleezza Rice some compensation? Does that mean, you know, I mean, if we think about it like that, it ceases to make any sense. It's like giving, like the tax, you remember when we got like $300 back from George Bush? It's like something like that. But if we think about reparations as involving entire communities and not only communities of African descent, because so many other people have been hurt by that institution of slavery. Native American people have been deeply hurt in so many ways. So if we think about reparations as involving a rethinking of all of the major institutions that shape people's lives, if we think about it in the first place as the abolition of capital punishment, it seems to me that that ought to be number one on the list of reparations for slavery. But if we also think about abolition of imprisonment as the dominant form of punishment, we have to begin to imagine what it might mean to live in a society that does not depend on prisons for our security. You know, because even those of us who are radical and progressive, we manage to feel safer if we know that there are these places where the really dangerous people are kept. I mean, even though we may not say it, but on some very deep level, we live with this notion that security is only possible when certain people can be segregated from the rest of us. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't people who need serious work done. But that a lot of us need some serious work, right? A lot of us, a lot of people who are walking around free need to do some serious work to remake themselves. But if we don't begin to think about this and to talk about it and to imagine other ways of 
living and cohabiting in in a different kind of democracy then you know we'll be stuck with this forever and i for one am not willing to put up with this for generation and generation and generation so it also means that we have to rethink the whole society we have to you know we have to figure out how we're going to um seriously build strong movements against capitalism against global capitalism i think with that i'm going to say good night <laughs>
and I engaged this friend in that whole conversation. Now, this friend definitely has children. So, you know, when you're talking about gifts for the children, I get the concept. The three wise men brought gifts to baby Jesus in the manger, right? I don't know where the tree came from, but uh, okay, fine. So we're putting up pine trees uh, to simulate the manger and uh, giving gifts to the babies, the children. So uh, I'm out shopping with this uh, particular friend and they're just buying gifts in the tree and oh, they're doing the, oh, they're just doing it. They're just doing the whole Christmas spirit thing, right? And they asked me if I wanted a tree and if, if I, you know, we just began engaging in this conversation about Christmas. And, and my simple reply was, you know, I will get a tree just big enough or just enough to represent the spirit, the spirit of Christ, miss Christmas, Christmas. Okay. And so I got this uh, little four inch tree. It's a, it's just as tall. It's not even as big as like the length of my hand, hand to my uh, elbow. It's not even that big. It's a little teeny weeny tree. And it has one little silver star sitting on top. And that's for my mom and for my son. But my son is now Muslim, so he doesn't even celebrate Christmas, which, uh, you know, I had shared the truth of Christmas uh, and who's really coming down the, <laughs> the, the chimney. Uh, it was not a great big fat dude in a red suit. It was me and my mom. So I explained that to him right around age 10 or 11 uh, and got that notion out of his mind and, and, ex and exchanged the truth with him. But, he, you know, we still celebrated it for the love of it, the family, the togetherness, the joy. Those were the things that my family celebrated about Christmas. And for the sake of that memory, I have a little teeny weeny four inch tree, five inches tops with one single silver star sitting on it, and it's sitting on top of my dining room table. And that will be my extent of Christmas for 2021. I'm not a Scrooge, but it's hard to, you know, once you take the red pill or the blue pill, it's kind of hard to turn back uh, and live a lie once you know the truth. It's very difficult to live a lie when you know the truth. That's my two cents on it. And I'll tell you, in an era... Uh, where deceit is consistent, is consistent, you know, telling the truth within itself is a very act of revolution. In a world that we live in where deceit and lies and treachery seem to just be running rampant, like someone opened up the floodgates and let it out. Just being able to stand up and tell the truth is an act of revolt, an act of revolution within itself. And so if you call me a revolutionary, yes, I graciously will accept that title because I will speak the truth. So that's my two cents in that cookie jar uh, moving forward. But yeah, so I wanted to share with you also this great little new drink that I've made up. Now I do a fruit smoothie pretty much every day. I've got my B uh, complex vitamins. I've got my elderberry. I'm doing my honey, a teaspoon of honey every single day of my life and have been doing that for a number of years, uh, which may be the reason why I stay as healthy as I do, considering my age. All things in consideration, right? 
<clears throat> and with that, I cough. <clears throat> Pardon me. Yes, I definitely have a bad habit of cigarette smokes. And uh, I guess I'm going to work on doing something about that as we move forward. But right now, that is probably my biggest culprit. And uh, I will battle that until I can quit smoking, which <laughs> that's easier said than done, ladies and gentlemen. But I wanted to share this great new little invention that I came up with. Just like every fruit smoothie, I start off with ice, fresh fruit. I may add yogurt, honey, uh, and some other little vitamin goodies in there to keep my body healthy and strong. Today, I made a great little mixture of blackberries with strawberry yogurt, ice, a teaspoon of honey, some of my elderberry syrup, and I blended it all together. And I have a delicious, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you about the two slices of apples that I put in it. So I'm drinking this amazing, healthy, like, concoction, elixir, <laughs> if you will. And I must say, please try it at home. You're going to make your mouth so happy. But even more importantly, you're going to make your, 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 your body very healthy and very happy. But I will tell you, this is not the kind of drink uh, that you want to blend up and drink if you are traveling and you are nowhere near a restroom, the bathroom. You want to be able to use the bathroom when you drink this drink because it will cause the body uh, to release all of the toxins uh, from your body as much as possible. I mean, you know what the medicinal properties of blackberries are, and we know an apple a day keeps the doctor away, and we know why. And it's the apple that will cause you to cleanse your system. So that honey and that elderberry, you just can't live without it. I'm telling you, it's it's a beautiful scenario. So give yourself, you know, a treat today instead of drinking sodas and juice with sugars. Uh, let's try that healthy thing and see how it makes us feel. It makes me feel great. And I'm almost 60 years old by the grace of God. Alhamdulillah. Um, so moving on, I also want to say, you know, my sincere and absolute heartfelt uh, condolences, but also my prayers and good energy I send out to all of the residents, the people of Kentucky and the neighboring states uh, that have dealt with devastation, absolute devastation because of the tornado. Families are now displaced. They don't even have a house to put a tree in to put gifts under. They don't even have a house, some people. And some people no longer have their family or their friends because they have been lost in the devastation in Kentucky. And so let us please send out our love and our prayers and our good wishes, our good positive vibrational energy. Let's send that out to these devastated families of Kentucky. But I also have to tell you, you know, sometimes it's so confusing. You don't know, or at least I don't know, I don't have any crystal balls at home, so I'm not always sure when people are dealing with a karmic issue and when people are dealing with a test of their faith, a strength to see if you've got the strength, you know what I mean? To get over the hump, whatever the hump may be, that life challenge that just happens 
out of nowhere, here comes a life challenge and now you've got to overcome it. Come it. Like, I don't always know when human beings are dealing with those tests of faith and those karmic repercussions for some act or actions that were dealt with or delivered or done many, many, many moons ago. I don't always know, but because I don't know which one God is doing with, with in the scenario, I'll just pray for them. I pray the best. May they learn their lesson. If it's karmic, may they learn their lesson and, and be well moving forward. If it's a test, I pray God give them the strength to overcome the test and that to pass the test and that their faith will pull them through to the other side. <coughs> So this is, this is my prayer. And uh, again, I apologize. I keep coughing a little bit. I had a cold earlier uh, in the season, right at the change of the season, thought I was cute and going to go outside improperly dressed for the weather. It was nice out, but it was still the bad weather that makes you, that makes you sick. So um, I caught a little bit of a chest cold, but I'm fine now. I'm well. And yes, I've been tested for COVID. Jesus Christ, I've been tested. I am negative of COVID. I do not have COVID or any other sickness or underlying uh, immune deficiency uh, disorder or, or health conditions. Thank God. I, but I did get a seasonal cold to which I am now getting rid of for the most part, uh, just hanging on at the very tip. I've got a little congestion in my in my uh, lungs, and that's coming out. That elderberry is really, really uh, helping me to heal, and my smoothies are making me healthy every day. So, and I'm definitely dressing appropriately now for this weather. No more thinking I'm cute, and if I'm going to be cute, I got to do it. You know, I got to be cute, like dressed up with scarves and hats and gloves and big heavy coats, like. That's, that's the smart thing to do at this point moving forward. So I can honestly say giving thanks and praise, hum to Allah, thank you God, that uh, we really have not had a harsh winter as of to date. It's kind of been a nice, mellow, easy, uh, you know, transition from that beautiful summer weather into the fall and the fall now into what is officially known as winter. So thank God. And I know all the little babies and the children and maybe some grown-ups who are kids at heart. You're waiting for the snow, but I'm telling you, I'm praying, please, God, divine universe, do not let it snow. I just, we, how can we travel with all of that snow? I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's a good idea. Too many car accidents. Let no snow. Let it not snow <laughs> as we move forward so that we can all continue to get around and move safely. Uh, also wanted to share with you, you know, uh, I think I've mentioned on more than one occasion that I don't watch a lot of television, but I'm an absolute movie buff. I love documentaries on history, things that took place long before I was here, or maybe my spirit is a returning spirit. So uh, maybe that's why I love things from the old. I love vintage antique things, including movies. So, um, I loved, and I love history. 
These are things that like I just find very, very interesting. And of course, law. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that I keep my head somewhere constantly in a law book somewhere. And so I just think that that's the right thing to do moving forward. You got to know the law. Otherwise, you can never stand on your square and defend yourself, right? So, but I love watching movies. And so um, I'm sitting at my computer my laptop at home uh, in the still of the night, and I'm actually studying the law and uh, and writing up some paperworks that I have for the courts. In the background, my television is playing, and this movie comes on about Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, a man to whom I absolutely show the most respect and love. I got to give love and respect to Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela because these were two pioneering champion spirits uh, that, that stood up and they fought for what they knew was right. But what caught my attention in the whole movie, and there were so many good points in the entire movie, but one of the things that caught my attention, maybe it was just the mood that I was in. These people sent Nelson Mandela to prison with a sentence of life, life sentence in prison. They released him after 27 years because the, the press, the media all over the world uh, got involved and it became bigger than they were. And so for the sake of saving face, let's just make the story short, for the sake of saving face, they let him go. After 27 years, 27 years they took from his life Although he was a beast and even while incarcerated, he was writing letters and sending information and giving instructions and guidance so that the movement could continue. The movement did not stop, although they thought it was going to stop when they put him in prison. They thought that would shut it down, but it didn't. But I found it so interesting that here you have a man. Nelson Mandela, born, bred, raised in his own country, in the continent of Africa. Africa is a continent with many, many, many countries. So here Nelson Mandela is in the continent of Africa, in his country of Africa, standing up for his rights and the rights of his people against a white African government, a white African government who then wants to shut him up, silence his movement, putting treason on him, alleging, claiming that he was committing treason against this white government that is oppressing his people and they put him in jail for standing up to stop the oppression and have equal and fair justice across the board. To me, somehow, that just really rocked my goat. That rocked my goat. Like, are you serious? Like, I don't, I guess maybe, maybe I'm looking at it wrong, but I kind of took it like <clears throat> somebody coming into my house, a foreign person walking into my house, my home, that I have made beautiful and comfortable and secure 
And here comes this outside person in my house and decides to lay laws and govern my house in the way that best suits them. And because I stand up and say, you have no right to create laws that govern how I live in my house. Now you're going to, you're going to claim, uh, accuse me of treason against you. You're the foreigner who came into my house and decided to attempt to take over. Now you're going to incarcerate me or, or accuse me of treason because I'm standing up for my rights. You have lost all of your fudging marbles. You've lost them. You've lost your fudging marbles. You cannot come into my house and begin to set laws and precedents and policies of governance in my house and then accuse me of treason against you because I will fight you because you're bringing laws and governance into my house that are wrong, that are oppressive and depressive and suppressive. You want to take the very life I have in me out of me. You want to steal my life force, my energy by controlling my house and the rules that govern my home. You're the foreigner, but you step in my house and you want to tell me how to how to run my house and then put me in jail because I don't want to run my house or I fight you for the, for the control over my home. Like that made no fudging sense to me. No brownie fudging sense to me at all. So I applaud Nelson Mandela for his sacrifice 27 years of his life to stand up and fight the invader the intruder, the foreigner that came into his house, his country, decided to take over control through their governance and tell the people how this house, this country was going to be run. And anyone who didn't like it was beat, ostracized, mutilated, burned, and incarcerated if they stood up against the foreigners who wanted control over their house. I tell you, people in the world, there's something going on here with us. The arrogance, the ego, it, it is almost, it is beyond shocking to the conscience. It is beyond insulting to think that they had a right to do that and that they continue to do that. Even today in 2021, there are foreigners in the house attempting to take control over a house that did not belong to them. But what can we, the people do to stand up and fight back? Will we go to jail? Will we be ostracized? Will we be criticized, mutilated, beat up? Will this happen to us because we stand up and fight? We fight against that which is wrong. We stand up and we fight for that which is right, for justice. No one ever said that the battle would be easy or that the battle would be short. 
That's why it's a battle. But you got to stand, ladies and gentlemen. We, the people, must stand. And I know that there are people out there now listening to me saying, oh, I hate Republicans. Republican this, Republican that, Democrat this, Democrat that. Look at your history. If you are a melanated person, a person of hue to your skin, look at the history and find out the difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and why we are in the situation we are in today, messing around with politics. Politics is a portion of what got us in to the mess that we're into this day. Check your history and look at Republican and Democrat. Go way back. What kind of people were melanated people in the beginning when we had Black Wall Street? What were we? How did we govern ourselves when we were Black Wall Street? When we had our own communities of doctors and lawyers and scientists and, and merchants and stores when we were in control of our own neighborhoods where you could leave your door unlocked and it was okay if the neighbor went in because you knew they were going to be honorable in your house and your home in your house so it was okay check out were we democrat or republican during those times and what changed what changed us <laughs> yeah do your history Learn your history, know your history. And I know that many of us do. But why we're still voting the way that we vote, I just can't even begin to fathom why so many black people are voting the way that they vote, considering the history of who we were and where we were in the beginning and how we got away from that and how politics Republican, Democrat, how that changed everything for us. I mean, we're always black people in America. It is unfortunate because of the 247 years of slavery and 400 years of oppression that we are still living, living in today. Massive incarceration takes away the vote from the black man. Massive incarceration of the black man takes away the vote of the black man. And we're just now addressing the issue of black men, formerly incarcerated, returning citizens, having the privilege and the right to vote. So we're still living in a lot of that bullshit. It's still upon us today. To be honest with you, black people, African-Americans, whatever you want to call us, melanated, black, brown and golden, whatever title you want to put on us. People who are non-white in this country, 247 years financially behind the eight ball to all of those people who are white because of generational money. And maybe you are not racist. Maybe you love black people. You're a white person. You love us. Well, you know, we probably love you too. I've got some of the most amazing friends in my life. My sister is not as dark as I am, but I love her to pieces. So it's not all whites, but if you look back at your genealogy, you may find that three, 400 years ago, 200 years ago, it was your grandfather 
who was a slave owner. And some of the wealth and privilege that you live through today is because of the slave ownership of your grandfather. And trust me, if you had a grandfather, 12th generational grandmother, grandfather that had a tobacco field, a cotton gin field, okay, uh, a potato field, then chances are there's a 90% chance that that grandparent had slaves. They didn't get out there and, and pick the cotton themselves. They did not do the tobacco fields all by themselves. They did not hire all white uh, workers. Chances are they had slaves. And if they had slaves, as much as it may shock you, my beloved, beautiful, wonderful white brothers and sisters, I must tell you, your, some of your privilege and your finances today came from them owning slaves. Sorry to disappoint you. Sorry that it happened. So sorry that it ever happened. But now fast forward, here we are, where some people have 247 years financial advantage over black folks for whatever reason. We look at our children running the streets, shooting and killing each other with a mindset where they have totally lost their whole perspective of their ancestors and all that we have been through to give them the right to walk the streets free, much less have a gun. And they're walking around with these privileges that our ancestors died and fought for, like Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Winnie Mandela, Malcolm X, and the, and the list of names go on. Madam C.J. Walker, the list just goes on. The names of people who died in this country in the struggle, in the fight for freedom and rights. Our young people have somewhere lost that. So they're walking around free with all these rights, not even realizing how they got them. Now, whose fault is that? Mom and dad, I'm going to ask you first. Whose fault is it that our children are walking around shooting and killing each other because they don't know their history. They have no honor and respect for the ancestors and the elders that gave them the privileges. But their minds are all messed up because they're living in an economic, financial deprivation that makes them do things they should not do. And we want to put them in all kinds of incarceration and halfway houses and uh, detention centers. And we want to do all of these punitive punishments, smack them across the head for misbehaving. Yes, they are doing some atrocious things and they might need a good smack up against the head. But I'm not saying it's the judicial system that should smack them. How about us in the community? Let us do the smacking. They're our children. None of the schools uh, in the city of Wilmington or the state of Delaware that I know of, such as Ursula, uh, St. Mark's, Padua Account Academy, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, I can't even think of the names of all these schools, but all of these schools that, that house predominantly non-black students, 
There's no guns, the uh, monitoring system. You don't walk through a monitor and, and see whether or not, you know, you have a gun. They're not checking your book bags. These kids are playing lacrosse and uh, basketball or not even basketball, whatever they're doing. They're playing all these great sports. They're involved in all of these activities that are going to make them great and wonderful thinkers, great thinkers. But when you step outside of those schools and those criteria into our schools like William Penn, Newark High School, Glasgow High School, these types of schools are struggling. They're struggling. They're predominantly black, brown, and golden children in these schools, and they're struggling. Why is that? What does Padua and St. Mark's and Ursula, uh, uh, Silesianum, what do they have that Glasgow, Newark, uh, uh, you know, what do they have that, that we don't have? What do they have that Glasgow doesn't have? What is Padua and Silesianum doing different than Newark High School? What are they doing different? Why? Why? Why is it certain groups of children are being incarcerated and killing each other while other groups of children are out on the field after school and they're playing lacrosse and uh, I don't even know the name of the games that they're playing, but they're in study halls learning the law. Because I promise you, when I tell you that Salesianum is a mandatory requirement that you learn the law, you take law labs at Salesianum. I've never heard of a law lab at Glasgow High School. Why is that? Does Newark High School offer law labs so that the children, the students in those schools can learn the law like the children at Salesianum and Padua and St. Mark's and Ursuline? What do those schools have that these other schools don't have? What are you going to do about it? You, we the people, we want our children to stop killing each other. And it is our children. We want them to stop shooting and killing each other. But what are we doing to help them? Are we putting policies and laws into place that say whatever Ursula had, Ursuline has, whatever Padua has, Whatever Silesianum has, Glasgow has to have it. Newark needs to have it. Uh, and all of the other little schools, Brandywine, they all get to have whatever these other schools have. Oh, one's private and one's public? <laughs> well, that says a lot. Doesn't that say a lot to us? Private school versus public school. Look at that. Just think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Just think about that for a minute. Think about it. <clears throat> it's enough to make you hot because it certainly has my fire boiling. Speaking of fire, I want to say to you really quick, uh, where's my time? Yep, we just have a little bit of time left, but I want to say uh, in, in regards to my fire, my hot sauce, I think that anyone who's ever taken more than five minutes to get to meet me, you, you would agree that 95% of my time, my continence, is always friendly, approachable, smiling, easy to get along with, willing to engage you in a conversation, willing to hear what you have to say. But there is that 5%. 
that 5% of fire, which takes me back to the broadcast that I did. And then TT, uh, Timeless Thomas, Big Deezy, shout outs to Big Deezy. He kind of dovetailed on it. And that was forgiveness. I had watched TD Jakes on YouTube. I was scr uh, scrolling through YouTube videos looking for something lawful. I was looking for a piece of law regarding the superior courts. But I ran across T.D. Jakes and he was talking about all this forgiveness that we're supposed to do. I think he's 70 times 70 or 7 times 7, whatever it is, a whole lot of forgiveness, turning cheeks and uh, all kind of things. Well, I'm not there yet and I've admitted that. Now, there's a good portion of me I realize, and psychologically and mentally I understand, forgiveness is always about you, the person, not about the other person. It's about you and cleansing your spirit and your soulful energy. <clears throat> I mean, one of the most hurtful moments in my life was when a beautiful sister friend of mine, you know, she's got a PhD. Uh, we were in the same organization together, came up. We were friends. We were sisters for 30 years. She saw that a locomotive train moving at 100,000 miles per hour was coming down the tracks and I was going to get hit with it. But she never once picked up the phone to even bother to call me and say, sis, you better move out of the way because there's a locomotive coming down the tracks and you're going to get it. She never did. 30 years of friendship and she never even bothered to pick up the phone and call me and say, hey, a train's coming. But I forgive her because I realize the backstory of that is her family strongly encouraged her to be quiet, say nothing, do not speak, do not make mention that this locomotive train is coming down the tracks. And so she withheld that information under pressure, most likely, from her family. Had the scenario been different, she may have come to me and told me. What hurt me, what really, really, really hurt me was when I approached the sister and asked her, why didn't you tell me the train was coming? I, I may have had an opportunity to, to step to the side and move out of the way and not get hit. I mean, I may have, I may not have, I may have still just got hit by the train, but at least you telling me would have given me the heads up to prepare for the impact of this locomotive, this life locomotive coming at me. And it was her response to my saying that to her that hurt me. Her whole response was, well, nobody told you to be on the train track in the first place. Really? 30 years of friendship? You asked me to help put your your wedding thing together, your wedding ceremony party together? I was honored to do that. And that just solidified our friendship as sisters. And you mean to tell me the best thing that you could say to me is I shouldn't have been on the track, holding no accountability of you telling me that a train's coming. You shouldn't have been on the track. That was hard for me. Really, really, really hard for me to get over, to forgive. But I knew that forgiveness was about me. 
it wasn't about her. And that sister and I, I love her. And she claims to love me from a distance. We love each other from a distance. But our friendship is no longer simply because there's no more communication. How can you be friends if you don't talk to people? You can't be, you can't be friends with someone if you don't communicate and interact with them, right? At least sometimes once a month. There is no more interaction between this sister and myself. And I wish her well. It wasn't what she did that hurt as much as, well, what she didn't do, <laughs> uh, that hurt as much as her response to what she did not do or did do. So forgiveness is always about us. It's not about the other person. And I forgive her because I got to go on with my life. But I will share this with you, ladies and gentlemen, and I don't know if it is perhaps the, the mother in me. You know, moms take on a whole new, we just grow fangs and claws when you start messing with our little children's, our little chickadees, our babies. You know how we are. Come on, if you're a real mom out there, you know how you feel when somebody messes with your baby, your child, your offspring. What does a mama bear do when you messing with her cub? Well, I got to tell you, <laughs> if you see me in the streets, in a public venue, uh, and I really don't care who's standing around, I don't care what the scenario is, if the opportunity presents itself and puts me in the presence of one particular person in the state of Delaware, I'm going to give them the fire because this person offended and hurt my child stole money from my child. My son is incarcerated, paid an attorney $3,000 to do his commutation papers and to work with him uh, for his release, his liberation. This attorney stole that money, did none of the things in the contract, absolutely unethical. And when I see this attorney, who has moved on to become a city council representative and uh, I don't know, might be something now with in treasury. You have maybe have heard of him. Uh, attorney Christopher Johnson, Chris Johnson, seventh district representative of city council, maybe left there and now he's working at the treasury for the city of Wilmington and had a nerve to talk stuff on me to other people who came back and told me what he said about me, I'm crazy, oh, she doesn't know, she's crazy, you know, whatever. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, 95% of my entire continence is approachable and friendly and get along and let's talk and let's dialogue and let's connect. You're my brother, you're my sister, regardless of color. That's who I am. But that 5% of me, this fire that I manage and control, when I get in the presence, should that opportunity present itself to be in the presence of Chris Johnson, I'm going to give him my fire. I'm going to make sure that I share it with him. So if you catch me in public acting in a way that, that just absolutely blows your mind, like, oh my God, Rochelle, how could you be acting that way? Well, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it's in all of us. And if that story is true, that us, we're created in God's image and that whole in his likeness and all of that, if all of that part is true, 
You show me some place in the Bible where God did not lose his temper and destroy nations of people because he was pissed at their disobedience to his laws and regulations. So if God has the right, and he does, if Almighty Divine Spirit has the right to destroy a whole nation of people, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of their disobedience. Destroyed every last one of them, killed them, brought the whole city down. If God can lose his temper, I'm entitled to lose mine. My understanding is it's we're okay. It's okay if, if we get angry. It's what you do with it. How do you manage your anger? How do you control it? What do you do with it? Well, put me in the presence of Chris Johnson, and I'm going to show you that 5% of uncontrolled, unmanaged fire. And he's a big man, but I do not care. My mama told me the bigger you are, the harder you fall. Let it be what it's going to be. So as we come here now to the very close of my show, um, I want to just give you one last piece of good information. Uh, forget Chris Johnson, but I had to say that because people have this expectation of me to behave uh, 100% all the time in my best self. But I'm telling you, in the world of forgiveness, I'm sorry, Bishop T.D. Jakes, when it comes to Chris Johnson, I'm not there yet. I have not forgiven him. He hasn't even asked me for my forgiveness. But that's okay. Since I can't forgive him at this time, I will definitely give him the fire. So moving on, I want to uh, let everyone out there know <clears throat> that there's a great new credit union right around the corner, Stepping Stones Credit Union at 603 North Church Street here in Wilmington, 19801. You want to jot this number down. Uh, I've actually started making friends uh, with the young fella in there uh, by the name of Greg. He kind of runs it. Uh, and it is a credit union, a federal credit union. It's legit all the way through and through. It's in the hood, the neighborhood. It's for us and by us. So if you're interested you can start a bank account with them for as little as $5. They've got some great incentive programs to help you earn money, keep money, and, uh, and just keep it accruing in your bank account. But they start off by offering you a free laptop computer. A free laptop computer just for joining, uh, signing up, and becoming what they call a member. A member of the credit union. And again, that's the Stepping Stones Federal Credit Union at 603, uh, 603 North Church Street. Jot this number down if you can or put it in your cell phones. That's 302-298-3254. Uh, Stepping Stones Credit Union, Federal Credit Union, fully insured 
great little place to go and tuck some money away uh, and let it just grow. Just let it grow. Just let it grow. Let it grow. So I want to give a shout out to them. They are recreating the Black Wall Street right here in our community here on the east side. So we have East Side Pride uh, for the Stepping Stones Federal Credit Union. And if you sign up and hurry up and get signed in, uh, you're going to get a free laptop uh, that you can do all kind of great little things on. Personally, I'll be using mine for Make Some Intelligent Noise. And you are listening to Make Some Intelligent Noise. Rochelle Wilson here uh, for the movement about fairness and equality and justice. Justice for all of us, not just some of us. All of us. It is our inalienable and unalienable natural God-given right to be treated with fairness and equality across the board, ladies and gentlemen. Not just some, but all of us. And I'll leave you with that question. Answer that question. What is it that Padua and Ursuline and Silesianum and St. Mark's, what do these high schools have? What are they doing so different than Glasgow, Newark, uh, Brandywine High School, and, and you know all of these schools, Concord High School. What are these schools doing different? What do they have that they don't have? How can we get in our schools what these schools have in their schools? How can we make sure that Glasgow High School has the same law labs that Silesianum has? How can we do that, ladies and gentlemen? We, the people, must stand up and fight for it. You got to advocate for what you want. You got to stand up. Does that mean that, like Nelson Mandela, you'll be incarcerated, ostracized, criticized, ridiculed, beat up, mangled? I don't know. Maybe. Perhaps. But isn't it worth it for the future generation what we do today to save our babies, our children, our posterity, what we do today to save them will have a great impact on them tomorrow. We want them to stop killing and shooting each other. It takes all of us to chime in on this important issue. Above all other issues, and there's a million of them going on in the world, we can pick up a banner and fight for all these various issues that face us in the world today. So many of them. Pick and choose a battle. But whatever battle you pick and choose, fight for our young people, for our posterity, and yes, our being black, brown, and golden children if we don't fight for them now and save them now, look at the culture they're going to grow up in. Look at what their future may hold. And it was set up by design hundreds of years ago. It was set up by design that our posterity would be killing and murdering each other and going to prisons today. It was set up by design. We have to stop it because only we can. That's my two cents in the cookie jar. You can take it, leave it, or tell me to kiss your assets. But I will stand on my soapbox and I will advocate for the youth.
because all of us old fogies, the elders, we're, we're going to go. I don't know where we're going, but someday we're all going to be gone. And it's our young babies who are going to be running this whole world. This is their culture. Let us do all that we can to preserve as much as we can of their, of their life. Just making it a better life for our babies. We can't do much about all of us old fogies. Because we're so hard-headed, we think we know it all, and nobody can tell us a daggone thing. But our babies are still sponges, impressionable, and they can be saved. Let's at least try. Nelson Mandela gave his life for his people. Are you willing to at least stand up and speak up for yours? I'm Rochelle Wilson at WHGE 95.3 FM, the one and only Black-owned, Black news information source uh, in the city, in the state of Wilmington, the city of Wilmington, the state of Delaware. Thanks to Harmon Carey Broadcasting in Philadelphia and New Jersey. Thanks to Pavel Uranga and the Indie Radio Garden. Thank you. And I wish each and every one of you continue to have a safe and prosperous holiday season. If this is a season that you celebrate, do it in prosperity and love. It is not about spending money at the merchants. It is about putting love and compassion from your heart to others. That's what Christmas, Christ, Miss, is all about. God loves you and so do I. Peace and grace until we get together next Saturday. I'll talk to you then. God loves you and so do I. opportunity for death.